Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Kenneth Chog, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast, mate. Owen, thank you for having me on again. Yeah, it's always a bit of fun when we get to talk ETFs and, and different types of strategies. Today, we're going to be talking about fixed income and bonds, um, and we're also going to be talking about gold. So uh, gold is something <laughs> I know you're well-versed in, and uh, fixed in interest and fixed income are things that we are kind of talking as new, covering as new ground on the podcast. But I thought before we get into the meat of this sandwich, let's do a bit of quick fire. Uh, I've got a few questions for you sent in advance. Uh, what's the best investment you've ever made? So the best investment I've ever made, is, and again, it's quite apt that we're talking about gold because it is gold. Um, oh, right. Yeah, it, it's one of those things because it's not, for me, the best investment. You know, I've made some good investments from a ETF side, from, you know, property side, been very lucky on, the, on those things as, as well. And um, But I think for me, gold has been a really big stabilizer in my portfolio. So in the current market with the volatility that we've got, when I'm looking at my, you know, my super portfolio and I'm looking at it going, okay, and I'm thinking and looking at, you know, speaking to others and looking at what markets generally have, have done this year, I'm sort of saying, okay, yes, I'm looking at it from the long term because I'm on sort of the, the younger scale in terms of I've got a couple of few decades, hopefully, before I need to retire. Yeah. Um, but from that side, I'm thinking, okay, gold has been stabilizing the or the negative performance um and it's been that that portfolio trend so yeah it's, it was quite interesting given what we're talking about today is you know one of the topics is gold and for me that's actually probably been one of my um my best investments hmm. wow i didn't expect you to say that so that's uh fascinating uh what about yeah. your worst investment yeah, so my worst investment I, I was actually thinking about this so i got caught up in the zip um oh no uh, yeah, so I, I, it was only a very small amount. It was sort of a, in my sort of PA, my personal account, just sort of a little bit of, yeah, just see how things go. And so I, I did that. Um, that that didn't go so well. And I and I, I held on for for quite a long time. Um, but then they presented a tax loss um, by the end of it, um, more than anything. Um, but then actually I was also thinking about, I have looked at leveraged ETFs. Um, and this is something that I think you and I spoke about because obviously yeah, we... We have leveraged ETFs from an ETF security standpoint. We've got a short leveraged NASDAQ and a long leveraged NASDAQ hedge funds. And so taking a magnifying glass or a mirror on the NASDAQ 100, essentially. And it's all about, you know, they're for sophisticated investors, but they're for investors that are monitoring how the markets are going and changing those positions accordingly. So if you lose sight of that or you get caught up in life and you do other things, well, then they potentially can be a bad return for you. And so, you know, the, I was nearly caught out with those investments when I was, um, you know, I, I, I used some of the leverage investments during during COVID and during when the market was quite volatile. And during when markets are really volatile, that's what we've seen anyway, that those are the types of ETFs that get a lot more use and volume and, tra and trading of them. Mm. Um, but that, that has been one. And then I was actually thinking not investing as well. Hmm. Um, because when you think about it, you know, it's time in the market, not timing the market. You know, we, you, you, you've spoken about that before, and it's something that I'm really conscious of. But sometimes, again, 
getting caught up in life or sometimes getting caught up in the inertia of things and saying, okay, where, when do I, when do I go in? When do I buy? When do I sell? So thinking about the approach that I need to have, maintaining that approach and being consistent with it. And some of these, um, you know, there are some platforms, there are robo advisors that are really useful to help in that way. They'd sort of try to automate things. And, you know, on the other side, there's financial planners that, you know, can assist you with that planning as well. But I think they, if you ask me for one, but they're probably three. I know it's quick fire, but we've probably gone on for a little bit. <laughs> no, I like them. I find these are probably the most interesting things. Um, yeah, zip down. I just checked the chart down 85% year over year. Sorry, mate. Um, interestingly, right. I read something from SelfWealth this morning, um, the broker SelfWealth, and zip was in their top 20 most traded shares for the entire market over the past year. And interestingly, it's a tale of two halves for Zip. The first half was very yeah. positive. And then this obviously the buy now pay later sector with bad debts rising. All questions were asked in the second half of the financial year. Yet it was, I believe, in the second half of the financial year when there was more trading activity, uh, which was interesting. Yeah. So um yeah, you're not you're definitely not alone there, mate. Uh, <laughs> my third quick fire is who's the best finance presenter you've come across? I actually got some feedback. Um, from, I guess, a mutual acquaintance of ours who said, and I've never seen you present. So this is from them. They've said that you're an extremely good presenter. So not not to butter your bread too much, <laughs> but maybe hopefully you can pay that forward. Um, who, do, who do you really admire when it comes to presenting and whether it's virtual, in person, whatever? So for me, it was an interesting. So I listened to, um, I listened to a lot of podcasts. I, I listened to your podcast. So it's funny. Back when I was younger and I used to go to the gym and exercise probably a bit more than I need to. No, I should, probably should, should do a bit more now. But um, back <laughs> in the day, I listened to a lot of music. And, you know, I was a kid of the 90s. So a lot of, you know, um, R&B and dance and rap and, and things like that. And then yep. over recent years, I've actually been listening to podcasts whenever I go for a run or go, you know, jump on the rower or go to the gym and things like that. So for me, it's some of the podcasts. One of the best ones actually, and again, I've got a bit of an ETF angle on, on how I look at the world, mm. um, given that's the industry I live and breathe. Um, and uh, so there's a person by the name of um, Eric Blacudis. So Eric Blacudis, he's mm -hmm. from Bloomberg and he's a co-host of the Trillions podcast. So oh. I, th and yeah, he, so the, the Trillions podcast is an interesting one because it just talks about a range of different topics ETF related. And so that was one that I thought, but I actually follow him on Twitter, follow him on LinkedIn, and he comes up with some really just good insights. So for me, it was actually him and more from the insights that I'm actually gaining in terms of an ETF market that is, you know, immensely, you know, bigger than what we are in Australia. But, you know, we can take inspiration from that as well. Mm. Yeah, fantastic. I've just put that on the list. I'm just looking at it now. So many, um, mm. so many uh, episodes and just really important topics. Okay, cool. I like yeah. it, man. I did not expect you to say that. So another great answer. <laughs> um, okay, so this... First question now is more so around um, like the topic of today, which is gold and bonds, is given that ETF Securities is the leader of uh, commodities-focused ETFs in Australia, if you were looking at an ETF that wasn't your own, what are the things that you would look at? So maybe like two or three things that you would look at if you were assessing that fund and how it's constructed. So is this from a commodity perspective or just yeah. a general perspective? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, firstly, am I looking to get uh, a physical exposure um, or am I, am I looking to get equity exposure? So that's probably the, the, the main thing um, because there are two very distinct investment theses for buying a physical commodity or you know a commodity in itself, like to, to track that commodity price versus the underlying equity stocks. Um, so I take the examples of, of gold is, is a good example. Do you buy gold for you know, the physical, because it's got certain um, place in a portfolio, and we will talk about that shortly, mm. or do you buy the actual underlying mining stocks? And the mining stocks, they may be perceived as being a leveraged view on the gold price, but mining stocks are also going to be impacted by management, that particular um, company, their, you know, mining exploration, um, you know, their mining operations, the market in general, um, other sort of geopolitical risk more specific to that mining company. You know, if they're operating in certain countries that they start to have conflicts or whatever it may be, or government changes. So there's a lot that goes on with an equity. Um, but again, probably there is a place for that, but it can also be side by side. So that's one, physical versus the equity. Mm -hmm. If you are looking at actual physical commodities or the actual commodity side, is the fund synthetic or physical? 
So this is important because for some commodity exposures, and I'm going to take oil as a good example, wheat, so a lot of the soft commodities, you cannot do it as a physical in terms of an ETF side. You know, would I structure and create an oil ETF and then have oil tankers with the actual oil in there and have it, you know, physically backed? It's probably not feasible and cost and, you know, to store that. It's just, it's just not a feasible approach. So for some exposures, they need to be synthetic. Now, if they're synthetic from a commodity perspective, investors need to be aware they may not track the underlying spot price of that commodity one-to-one. So there's going to be an element where there'll be some deviation from what the ETF performance is and the underlying commodity spot price, because you can't, it has to be synthetic. So it's using futures contracts and with its futures contract, it's the expertise of that manager and how they manage that position and those contracts. So there's that side. So physical versus synthetic. And if it is physical, you know, especially on the metal side, again, that's probably what I'm so well-versed in given the range that we have in physical gold, silver, platinum, palladium is, is it allocated or unallocated? And what I mean by that is if the metal that we hold within our gold fund is allocated metal, or what that means is that metal is actually linked to the unit trust of the fund. So it's linked to the investors. So the investors essentially have an ownership and entitlement on the gold that we hold physically and we store with um, with JP Morgan in their vault in London. So it's as close to owning gold without having to physically go out and buy gold, insure it and store it yourself in your own safe or in a vault. So allocated metal means that there's a direct link to the investor. Mm. Unallocated metal in the precious metals world essentially means that they may not you may not need to have all the gold sitting in that vault. We can theoretically take it. We can do what we want with it. We can lend it out. And there's all these other facts, um, you know, factors to that. So the investor doesn't actually have an entitlement on it because it's not allocated to that account. So that is really important, I think, when you're talking about physical um, in that respect. And um, I think, you know, at the end of the day, tracking error uh, is another big one in, in terms of, again, that probably comes down to that synthetic versus physical there's, and the element of the underlying trading costs, et cetera. But yeah, they're probably sort of three things. So commodity versus physical, if it's physical is, or if it's a commodity so that you're trying to get exposed, is a synthetic or can it be physical? Mm-hmm. And then, and by the way, if it's a synthetic or it's unallocated metal, which essentially could be, you know, they may have, they may not have all the, all the metal in that vault to back that ETF or that fund. So that's, again, just something to be aware of. And so for an investor, what are you really happy to get exposed to? Because sometimes those are the types of funds that could be a lot cheaper from a management fee. But by the way, when I say cheaper, I'm talking between 0.4% per annum to maybe 015 or 0.2%, for example. So it's not that much different in, in the scheme of things. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, yeah, because the, the naming convention here in Australia is also really stringent, isn't it, around what can and can't be called, you know, if it's a managed fund, hedge fund, physical, synthetic. synthetic. Yeah, yeah, it's it's and so those naming it's, conventions actually play a big role in that. And it's really good, I think, in a show from that side that it's very clear. So for an investor, they've they know straight away, but sometimes again, I would always ask investors, do you do that research? You know, look beyond the ticker. Yeah, yeah, you know, sure. so our gold ETF, the, the ticker is G-O-L-D. Okay, so that's fine. It gives you a good idea of what you're getting exposure to, but actually do a bit of do a bit of research, do a bit of due diligence, understand is that fund allocated metal, unallocated metal, is it physical, is it synthetic? What am I getting exposure to? Mm. Yeah, and I think it's a uh, really important because that's we we treat gold, or at least most investors treat gold as a backstop in a portfolio. I think you've mm-hmm. called a you've called it a ballast before. Mm-hmm. Um, and if this if that is the true reason that you're holding something like this, you'd want to know that it, you know, the risk you've taken a look at it, and the risk um, is as minimal as possible. Um, it's it's interesting you mentioned you know one of the ETFs there. Um, I know there's like the there is an oil ETF, and a tracking area is insane. On the ASX, so tracking area being the difference between what you're actually trying to get exposure to and the, um, I guess the fund itself, the fund performance. And there was actually something else I wanted to bring up, which is that I was just in the lead up to this, I was actually looking at the performance of um, all the, the the different types of ETFs that are on the market. And in the past, um, quite a few years ago, now I had a guy on the show called Curtis Larson, who's a super smart mathematical mind, and he, in a previous life, tried to model. Um, to to basically create a hedging mechanism where it would be 
um, equity linked gold. So effectively mm-hmm. you'd buy gold miners. And that's what we yeah. see quite a bit on the ASX as well. Like, com- like so-called commodities ETFs that um, are kind of, they try and play on that, but they're actually equities. And the the variation between the results is pretty stark between buying gold miners versus the gold itself. I don't know if you have a comment on that, but that was just something that I noticed. Yeah, look, it's something we've done some research on. And I'm not saying that investors, if that's what they want, they shouldn't go down the path and buy gold mining sure. stocks. That's fine. Um, but why are you buying gold mining stocks? So if you're buying gold mining stocks because you're trying to play or trade around the fact that you believe the gold price is going to go up and maybe these underlying stocks will have some price increase accordingly and some momentum in that, okay, there's there's an element of that. Um, is there potentially some factor around you know, the idea of resources and commodities generally getting a bit of a push. So gold generally um, benefits from that as well. So you've got this idea of if you're buying gold mining stocks for the equity exposure, great, that's fine. It sits within your equity sleeve. If you're buying gold for the defensive qualities of what gold provides within a portfolio, then that's also good as well. So that's why I say they're actually two different investment products. They're not, they should not be seen as apples to apples, they're apples to oranges. So you cannot be, but you shouldn't be comparing them um, really. Yeah. And I think when investors get caught up in gold versus gold, whether it's miners or physical, then that's the, that's where for us, we try to dispel some of those myths. Mm. Um, so when I look at um, the major uh, gold ETFs on the ASX, GOLD mm-hmm. is your ETF. It has performed better than the currency hedged version over five years. Like it's starkly better um so i would almost add to your all this before maybe being mindful of what currency you're 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 getting exposure to when you look at the gold price over time though say over whatever window three five one year whatever however you want to take this Hmm. have you been have you done research into like the attribution and and tried to get to the bottom of why gold goes up at certain times or you know, over time, because something we can do with factor analysis, I don't know if you, you probably mm. across this, you can do it in a portfolio. You can look at security selection, you can yeah. look at waiting, timing, um, carry, all that stuff. How do you um, how do you think about that? So I think with gold, the um, valuation model has slightly changed a little bit in the past sort of, I'd say, a few decades. Um, mm-hmm. Gold, it's a 2,000-year-old asset. It's a safe haven. And that's what it's always been as. Uh, been described as. So it's always been some level of safe haven, qualities to it, portfolio insurance. But what's actually driving the gold price? Over the past 15 to 20 years, gold's underlying price has actually been driven by real yields. So there's been a real strong coupling between real yields and gold. Now, that relationship between real yields and gold started to separate towards the back end of, say, Q3, Q4 last year and and a bit in the first six months of this year. And the reason behind that was inflation concerns and inflationary expectations as they started to to pick up and then geopolitical tensions as well. So with the geopolitical conflict within Russia and the Ukraine and Europe, you started to see gold improve or become more attractive for investors as a safe haven as people get concerned around what that might mean for the rest of the world. So Mm -hmm. there was a bit of a decoupling there. Now, that's more in a short to medium term as the Fed starts to now increase rates. So normally in a rising you know, rate environment, you generally would see gold do worse. And so it would underperform in theory. Um, we've probably seen a little bit of that um, more recently, but in the first six months of this year, gold actually stood up quite well because of the geopolitical tensions, because of higher inflation expectations as well. So there's multiple different factors that will go into the valuation around gold. Um, you know, so from a factor analysis, when you look at equities, what actually goes into it within gold, there is a model, and um, it's something that's in interest rates, it's inflation, it's also geopolitical tensions, and then it's also the investment side as well. So you obviously see mm. from an ETF standpoint, or even central banks as they increase their holdings of gold, that's obviously going to increase a demand on, on gold as well. So there's a few different factors, but to me, it's mainly interest rates and inflation, really. Mm. Yeah, right. Um, what you mentioned before that gold has been one of your best investments personally. Mm. Um, we've talked in the past about positioning gold in portfolios. And the reason why I'm interested to talk about this is a lot of people are considering, well, gold has done X over the past year. Bonds have been pretty pretty like smoked in most senses of the yep. word. Um 
and you know rates going up interest uh, inflation's high so people don't want to be in government bonds long-term long duration bonds and whatever so they're considering well maybe i think about more gold in my portfolio versus bonds you know this you know this age-old debate i guess the question that i've got for you is i've had a lot of people on the show and there's been varying the spectrum one inside is like you can have up to 20 percent of your portfolio in gold that's what the numbers say and other people saying we don't invest in gold because we don't believe it's an asset cut and all this stuff it, it, does, it doesn't give me it doesn't pay any dividends so why yeah, should i invest it yeah yeah exactly that's the, that's that kind of point how how did you maybe how do you think about this and where are you seeing it most effectively used so the way i see it most effectively used is first is the, the strategic allocation so when again from a self-directed investor standpoint, they may not look at um, their portfolio in this way. And that, that's probably appropriate given the fact that they're not a financial planner or they're not looking at their portfolio day in, day out. Mm-hmm. But there's the element of the strategic allocation, which is, you know, whether it's 60-40, 60, 40, 60 you know, um, 55, 45, or 35, 10, whatever it is. Um, and that's from like a, a balanced perspective. Um, yeah. There's this idea of what is the strategic allocation? So the long-term view. And to me, gold has generally been anywhere from two to seven percent within a portfolio um, for a strategic allocation, depending upon that risk profile. So yeah. there is a place for gold in most risk profiles, but the weighting of that obviously will increase or decrease depending upon that particular investor. So that's what we generally see between two to five percent, two to seven percent within a portfolio. But then there's the tactical allocation as well. So an example there is we've got some of the big, you know, wealth managers, private banks, institutional investors, they have their strategic allocation of gold, whether it was three, four percent. Over time last year, they thought, okay, we need to actually increase this because we are feeling a little bit uncertain around what's going on in the world. We feel inflation potentially is going to really pick up. So we want to increase that allocation to five percent. Then it's a case of, okay, so that's now a strategic allocation. Um, but now, beginning of the year, geopolitical tensions are increasing. Central banks are still a bit slow around what they're going to do. Uncertainty around when the Fed will actually start to move. Mm. Inflation numbers are starting to print higher and higher. Supply chain disruptions are increasing. So is this idea that inflation is somewhat you know, more short, medium term because of the tensions, because of the supply chain disruptions, the Fed's not sure where they're going to go. So those, those clients, for example, start to look at and go, okay, well, no, we need to increase our gold allocation from a tactical perspective. So there was a strategic and then there was a tactical. So for some of them, they went up to 10%, as you said. And we've got some clients that go up to 15%. Um, it really depends on your view on how you see the wealth yep. and also your view on how gold features within your portfolio. But I generally see, you know, on average, I'm not going to say, so we've got outliers. We've got, you know, you mentioned the outliers. Some people would say never in touching gold. Don't want to talk about it because, you know, let's be yeah. honest, it doesn't pay an income. It gathers dust. But it's, that's what it's supposed to do. So I'm not going to shy away from the fact that that's what gold does. And then you've got the other outlier, which is now I'm going to have 15, 20% of my portfolio in gold. And that's fine as well. And there's a thesis for that. Um, but on average, it's between sort of, I'd say, two, three to, to five to 7% in and around that range. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, and are you seeing any trends recently, like say the last six months of where that money comes from, if they're doing the tactical allocation, where are they taking that from? Yeah. So a lot of it is taking it from, uh, they've taken profits from the equity side. So a lot of clients sort of were exiting out of equity positions, sort of Q3, Q4 last year, as they start to see potential volatility in the markets and uncertainty around where markets were head were heading. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting. A lot of the clients we, we were speaking to at the beginning of the year and even a little bit less so now, but for the first three to six months, it was a case of, it reminded me of the conversations we were having with clients in January, February, 2020. So just before mm-hmm. COVID was a thing and just before we entered lockdowns, because at that point there was this perception that markets were overvalued clients were sitting on the sideline waiting for an event to occur. The event, to my view, that occurred, that that should have occurred is what we're seeing now. It was just delayed by COVID mm. and by okay. the, the big drop that we had in the big rally, sort of the recovery, essentially the recovery trade that we, that we had. But what we're seeing now is probably what would have happened two years ago. Now, so a lot of clients were sort of sitting on the sideline, a bit uncertain about what to do. You know, I remember speaking to some of the... Um, 
more tactical wealth managers. And they were saying, I'm literally sitting on the sideline, but I'm having to tell my clients to be patient around this because we need to just see where things are going to head. And obviously clients want to allocate out and, and do things. And so we actually saw a reallocation away from, you know, a combination of the equity profits that they had made. So cash sitting on the sideline into things like gold. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Um, just a quick one. When you, so when I, prep for these episodes i often like i go and read from a fair few different resources asset allocators and what have you and researchers when you look at this uh just any i guess any asset class that you're looking at and you are preparing funds or you're doing a presentation or whatever you do what is who what are some resources that you use to study the i guess even just the asset class of of, of gold or if it's commodities generally like what are you looking at sure so um I look at a few different things. So I go a bit more domestic and, and home front. I look at, you know, for me, things like the AFR are, are really good um, resources to, to to look at and just to keep an eye on what's happening in the markets. Bloomberg um, generally is mm. also a good one in the Wall Street Journal. So from a, a publication side, you know, I sort of would look at those three. Um, but then the other side in terms of more specifically, in, you know, in the industry that I'm in, in the role that I'm in, we've got access to also some of the investment bank research. So whether right. it's from City, State Street, JP Morgan, um, DWS, et cetera. So that's what we we can leverage that. And that's not everyone. And, yeah. and I, I appreciate that as well. But we've sort of got access to, to sort of that that side of things as well. And then lastly, in terms of, you know, we because we're talking about gold, I actually go to the World Gold Council as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So. A lot of people sometimes would ignore that and they probably are trying to do more work to raise their profile, but they've got some really good content, especially all around gold. So, because I, again, whilst we live live and breathe ETFs, I'm very much uh, across what's happening in the gold industry. The World Gold Council for me has has been one as well that, that I start to look at. Mm, yeah. Likewise, I've visited it quite a few times, the website mm-hmm. and what have you. I'll, um, I'll put links in the show notes to that for anyone that's interested. Um, so across the the spectrum of if we kind of like segue from gold into bonds here across the the spectrum of ETFs in Australia we've got say like the, the Vanguard VIF ETF international fixed interest hedged um, we've got a lot of long duration assets in there where the you know the duration might have been five or six and now the interest rates have gone up those have obviously fallen you know ten sometimes twenty percent um, I guess when from where you sit and from the, the data that you're getting and the views that you have internally. Are you seeing more weakness for long duration assets? Because I think that's the key question for everyone right now who's concerned like, well, a bond's going to keep falling um, and should I be deflecting some of that? So I think to take a step back for, for those that aren't aware, what, what is duration? Yep. Um, so so probably so bond duration, the best way to explain it is it's the way of measuring how a bond prices are likely to change if and when interest rates move. So if essentially it's a, it's a good measure of the risk to interest rate movement. Now, mm-hmm. the way in which to think about it is a high duration, as you mentioned, every drop of, or every increase of 1% in interest rates would reflect a drop conversely of that number in terms of duration. So if the duration was five, an interest rate increase of 1% would mean a drop of 5% in the bonds price. Yep. Now, I think... One, you need to probably question where are interest rates going to go? And there's a lot of discussion around this, around how quickly the Fed is going to just raise rates and even the RBA and central banks around the world. We've seen you know, the ECB become a bit more aggressive in that as well. Um, so how quickly are central banks around the world going to raise rates to try and rein in inflation? Um, mm. is the perception there. The problem is that they're playing a bit of a balancing act. You know, during COVID, there was this perception that they're not doing enough and, you know, we shouldn't be looking to them. They shouldn't be telling us what to do, et cetera. And now all of a sudden, where everyone's looking at them going, you need to do more. So they, they can't win, really. Um, and they're in this position where they're trying to balance out, well, if we aggressively raise rates too much, we don't want to tip the economies into recession. So... We need to aggressively raise rates to rein in inflation, but not tip the economy into recession. So it's a balancing act. Now, a lot of people believe that some of the inflation pressures that we're seeing is also driven by the tensions that we're seeing in Europe and also some of the supply chain disruptions as well. Mm. So it's this perfect storm that we're in. 
And if we start to see some of those, and there's always this hope, isn't there? Start to see some of those issues start to, to dissipate. You also may see a bit more of an impact that central bank um, policy will have on inflation. And if that starts to happen, well, then the inf- interest rate increases or the aggressiveness and the policy that they're having at the moment may start to slow down as well. So right now, there's been this big immediate shift right right, right at this present. So I think that's something we need to consider um, because if you're looking at a lot of bonds right now and you're saying, you know, they've been hammered, you know, the sell-off in bonds has meant that, you know, what we're seeing in terms of, you know, the, the opportunity right now. So depending upon, for those investors that are basically stuck with it, they've probably seen their tradable value plummet is the mm. best way to look at it. For those that are potentially looking at fixed interest right now, it potentially presents an opportunity because those bonds are trading below their, their par. And also they're still offering good income as well. They're still offering good yield. Because when you think about it, the bond is still paying out that, that coupon rate as mm. well. So it's still paying out that coupon rate. And if you hold that bond to maturity, then you're still going to receive that that end that 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 final number that 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 original investable amount or whatever that may be. Mm. So it's a it's a bit of a tricky thing right now. It's in terms of potentially right now could could be an opportunity for for a lot of investors as interest rates are rising quite aggressively. Some of that is being factored into to bond prices. Yeah, I think that's the. It's I'm I'm really appreciative that you did take time to explain duration. Sometimes. Um... I take for granted that um, everyone knows exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, and and what I've found in, in looking at this is the yields on many longer duration assets um, and some of the bigger ETFs here in Australia, you know, are, are pushing two percent, um, and that's uh, I guess starting to get more interesting for people. And I, I haven't actually thought about it from the perspective of those two different perspectives. One, I've held it and I've run it down, and I'm I'm like I'm nursing a loss. Or the other investor who somehow deflected it, whether they're in cash, gold, whatever, and now they're looking at the opportunity. And I, I tend to think like I, I don't claim to be an expert on macroeconomics. I don't think either of us would be, but claiming that. But from what I have been reading, um, like I think what we're starting to see is um, an impact already on inflation through consumer sentiment, through business sentiment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're starting to see these things flow through, and I think. For many investors with the long-term perspective, yes, we've seen a lot of volatility recently, but it's probably not worth letting that recency bias cloud that long-term judgment. Um, so whatever allocations you had, perhaps they're still the right thing for you. Sure, you can revisit it or whatever. Um, but I think, yeah, so I think in summary, I guess the time to be thinking about shorter duration assets was probably later last year. And now it's yep. starting to think about it, to re-enter it if, you're, uh, if you did get out of it or longer duration and now you want to get back in. Um, yep. and I, I get, and one other thing I keep coming back to just as an aside is like for, for most accumulators that have a mortgage an offset account does provide, um, like an interest saving as well. So that's mm-hmm. a valid place to park excess cash. But, um, yep. anyway, I kept on going, I want <laughs> portfolio well, construction. So go, mate. Sorry. No, I was going to say on, on portfolio construction as well, just in terms of you, you, you touched on it there, the idea of, um, revisiting your positions. So you know how you asked me what was my what's been my best um my best holding or my best investment. I mentioned gold and it, it seems very boring, but the reason why it's actually was has been quite um good for me was that I was I would revisit that position. And right. when I would see the appreciation in the the my my position relative to the rest of my portfolio or whatever it may be, or just individually within that position, I would actually sell down. I would sell out of the and, and realize the profits because hmm. that's that's the key part there is to me that was my the ballast it was the portfolio insurance some of my other holdings whether it's on the equity side or for example I'm willing to hold on to them for a lot, for a lot longer because I feel look I'm uncomfortable with where those positions are but I revisited them and I hmm. sort of reviewed them from my side again I'm within the industry I'm doing that and you know people should have a financial planner to, to be completely honest. I'm probably down that path as well because I, you know, getting time poor um, and don't want to lose sight of that and, mm. and don't want to do that. Um, and, but that's sort of the thing where that's what an investment professional will be doing or a robo advisor or anything like that. That's what they do. You know, they would revisit your portfolio for you. They would 
rebalance it if, if need be, but they would understand, okay, are we happy with gold sitting in that position? Should we sell down some of those and realize some of those profits and just trim that position a little bit or maintain it, but relative to the rest of the portfolio? So it's about revisiting as well and, and making sure you're comfortable. Mm. Yeah, I like it. Um, so on the topic of portfolio construction, <laughs> um, if we go back to 60-40 example portfolio, however you want to break this up, if you had 40% in that defensive allocation, how would you think about that? Or how do you, maybe even it's not how you think about it, but how do you see the best advisors and asset allocators dealing with that side of the portfolio right now? So the past 40, 50 years, 60-40 has been the staple. Um, and you would actually look at it and go from a performance side, it's done very well, you yeah. know, from pretty much up until the, the, the end of last year. So up until December 2021, you'll be absolutely fine. This is, I mentioned, the perfect storm that we're facing right now in terms of geopolitical tensions, supply chain disruptions, inflation, interest rates rising, all of these things happening, and bonds and equities are falling at the same time, which is... A, I think it could be the first time that we've ever seen that occur in the way in which it has. So it's also about taking a step back. Now, to me, the 60-40 portfolio is too simplistic um, because I talked about gold. Where would gold sit within the portfolio then? You know, is to me, gold is an alternative. So that's why I would always look at it as saying whether it's a 55, 35, 10, for example. And that's just a very simple, again, I'm being very simple in how mm. I approach that, but allocating five to 10% to alternatives, because that is what you're wanting to do. Have, have something which is potentially not correlated to equity markets, which is the bulk of that. And ideally, they would also be not uncorrelated to bond markets as well. Now, again, unique situation that we're in, Equity and bonds have been completely correlated this year. Both have been negative. Gold has been positive. So for those investors that had gold in their portfolio, they were sort of uh, were benefiting from it. But that's how I would view it, is mm. not a 60-40. And it's not broken, but it's also interesting. We look at um, some of the big super funds, et cetera. They're being much more tactical. They're sitting in a lot more cash. Mm. Um, and some of those financial plans, that, that may work for them. Again, it's all about, you know, what you're trying to do within your portfolio and the time horizon that you're you're taking as well. So the 60-40 may not be working now, but there is some element to that that it can work because it's about being diversified. So even within that 60%, it's not about buying one single equity and one single company. It's about being diversified across different um, regions, different asset, uh, different um, sectors, different themes, different companies. Within that fixed income allocation, it's also about being diversified across the board. You know, the Australian fixed income market is going to be different to the US fixed income market. It's going to be different to the European and the Japanese fixed income market. You know, we look at yields and we actually look at um, the fact that Japanese and European fixed income or bond markets don't pay as high yields as what you would get in the US. So there's elements there. It's about being diversified within that. And that's where I think there's an old bucket that needs to be um, allocated to as well. Yeah, I talked to, that's good. I'm glad you said that because I talked to uh, Drew Meredith, who's been on the show quite mm -hmm. a few times. And we talk about like his alternative defensive bucket and um, having things like gold and um, other assets in there. It's, it's really interesting. I think it's more it's a more sophisticated way to break things up. Whereas, you know, for, for most people, uh, at least starting out investors with smaller portfolios, maybe the traditional bonds to um, equities mix is, is, a, is one way to think about it. But um, as you get more advanced, tends to help to break up those buckets a bit more. Um, just uh, in the, sorry, go, go for it. So I, I just going to be really quick. That's one of the reasons why we actually did a stock split on our gold fund. Um, oh, right. Because we wanted to make it more accessible for retail investors. So for those of traditionally that wanted to look at our gold, our GLD ETF, each unit was rough, approximately one-tenth of an ounce of uh, in Australian dollar term. So we're sitting about $220, $240 an ounce. Um, wow. or a, a unit, sorry. Um, so by doing that one to 10 stock split, it meant that each unit was, you know, 20 to $20, $22, $24 per unit. So all of a sudden for a retail investor that didn't have that larger allocation that they could invest in and they needed to be diversified, it now gives them the ability to be diversified into something like gold without needing to, you know, if you had a thousand dollars, how are you going to be diversified, you know, across two or three ETFs? Gold would not be a uh, 
a feature in that. But that's yeah. sort of one of that was one of the one of the reasons why I wanted to make it more accessible. I was wondering about this is I was doing some um like coding on the website the other day, some programming. Mm-hmm. I noticed that the gold chart for one of the APIs that I had, uh, it just showed the gold price at ninety percent drop. <laughs> yeah, so I messaged, yeah. I emailed a data provider to say, "Hey, you got a massive error here. Something's going wrong." Yeah, but clearly it's um the split. Just, I didn't even think yeah. about that. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, it's, it's kind of, there's been there's been a few trading platforms that don't automatically update that, and so we have, we've had a few clients calling up and saying, um, "Why is my why is my holdings dropped by ninety percent?" And we obviously will talk them through the fact that well, it's simply a stocks with. So they they they'll the their, their value of their total investment hasn't dropped, but yeah, it can be seen as that. Yeah, lucky. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to fix that up after this. Um, so recently, uh, you guys at ETF Securities launched a couple of new funds. Um, you got the Treasury High Yield ETF. It's, uh, sorry, it's the Treasury Bonds so ETF? Got, yeah, so we've got a high yield bond ETF and a, and a Treasury bond ETF. So USHY and That's USTB. Yep. Yep. So why was, um, that, why was now the right time to launch them? <laughs> Um, look, I'd probably say there is never a right time to launch an ETF. And if you're trying to, t- it's the same way with investors trying to time the, their investment into the yeah. market, trying to time a an ETF launch, you, we don't do. Um, you know, so what, what goes into produ- producing an ETF, there's many different, you know, inputs into that. It's developing the product, speaking with um, index managers because we track an index, mm-hmm. um, working on the operational side, operationally, how is that fund going to work? Um, having the resources internally to support that fund, um, working with regulators, the exchanges, you know, there's all a myriad of, of different discussions. And so this has been a product that we've just been, we've been working on for a, a number of months now. Um, there was no sort of, we need to launch it right now. We need to launch, we should, you know, we should, we should wait. No, it's simply a case of we've been working towards it and we want to launch it. You know, we take a view when we launch an ETF that it should be in the market for many, many years, you know, five, seven years, three, five, seven years, then there needs to be supported in that time as well by the company, by the firm in distribution and marketing and support and et cetera. And that's going to allow the fund to run through the different investment cycles because right now, potentially, you know, from what we're looking at it going, actually, we talked about, you know, questions on duration, interest rate rises, you know, there is a place for the treasury ETF. It's a, it's seen as a potential safe haven in the way in which mm. gold is seen. Um, you know, these are, it's US government bonds. You know, it's as safe as you're going to get in in theory, because if something was to be any default concerns on, you know, the, the underlying treasury bonds, well, then there's a very big issue at play in global markets that we need to consider. Um, yeah. And then on, on the high yield side, again, quit people wanting to, to obtain that high yield, the impact of the interest rate rises on, you know, that particular fund, which may have, you know, a, a current duration of about, I think it's about 5.6. Um, but has it been sort of somewhat devalued because of the recent increase in interest rate rises? It is potentially a good opportunity to, to look at that now as well. And again, for us, there was a gap in the market, to be completely honest. We, you know, we had requests from, from clients saying, we see the world in fixed income with a US lens. We also don't want to take the global view because the global view has Europe, has Japan. Um, we don't want that exposure within the fixed income because they're not giving a high yield. So they're dragging down the yield. So if you look at a global bond index or a global bond ETF, you may see that the yield on that relative to, say, our US dollar high yield ETF, so that's the USHY mm-hmm. or the, the US Treasury bond fund um, ETF, you may see that actually is lower because the US um, Treasury um, bonds and US high US dollar high yield um, bonds are actually paying a high yield. So there's that element there as well, you know, giving something to to the investors as well. Mm. Yeah, I feel like the um, Treasury bond ETF um, would be more or better received over the next couple of years than maybe in the past. Um, I think um, investors will be, be looking for things like short duration um, that are looking for um, just like like you said, safe havens. So uh, that's kind of like ties in with this conversation around, you know, what goes into that defensive bucket. Um, it's it's quite yeah. interesting. And both of those are currency hedged as well. So this is the important thing with fixed income. The idea behind currency hedging those, by the way, is to remove any impact that currency um, movements may have. Mm. So with fixed income, because it's seen as a bit in that sort of that bucket of wanting to take the underlying true exposure. So 
you'll you'll actually find if you look at all fixed income, global fixed income ETFs, um, I think it, it, I'm pretty sure either all or very much close to all are currency hedged. Mm. And that makes sense because the currency, you don't need much of a change in the currency to wipe out any sort of yield mm-hmm. or income gain you get from most bonds, at least historically, like with rates being so low. Um, yes. One question just on these two funds that maybe uh, our listeners will be interested to know your answer to is that is basically the way the funds are constructed it looks um could correct me if i'm wrong mate it looks like it is like a master feeder fund so um mm-hmm. where the australian funds effectively feed into u.s listed funds or u.s domiciled oh, funds yeah. yeah yeah um and then what sometimes can happen is the tracking error between the two um can you explain i guess just how that works and if you can unpack my jargon there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. So essentially with um, sometimes when you have a feeder fund structure, um, the way in which we've approached this is, you know, we've worked with um, DWS Asset Management. Um, so that's the the asset management company of Deutsche Bank. Um, and, you know, we just worked with them to provide these exposures to the market here. So utilising their offshore listed ETFs, whether it's in Europe or the US. Now, from a perspective of tracking error and tracking difference, you know, we don't perceive there to be any great risk above and beyond what we would have normally achieved had we physically bought and, you know, held the underlying bonds themselves. Um, The reason for us approaching it in this way was we wanted to provide access to these exposures and we felt by doing it in this way was the most effective and cost-efficient way for us to do it. Hmm. Now, in terms of tracking error and tracking difference, I think a key part on this is, when it, what is an investor actually looking at? So a tracking difference is the deviation between the ETF and the underlying index or benchmark, I should call it. Um, whether that's fixed income, or so whether it's a basket of bonds, a fixed, uh, a fixed income index or a basket of bonds, an equity index or a basket of stocks, whether it's uh, just a traditional benchmark like we have for our gold or our Bitcoin ETF, for example, you know, whatever it is, it's that deviation, the difference between the mm. fund, the ETF and the underlying benchmark. At minimum, you'll probably find that the tracking difference will be the fee. So the management fee that the ETF charges, but there's going to be other overlays into that. Now with some of the more, you know, things like the the strategy used to uh, replicate that index. So does the feeder fund structure or does the underlying, does that ETF use a full replication strategy? Do they use a sampling strategy? So I'll I'll unpack that. And, you know, full replication means the underlying, all the underlying bonds are held. Sampling would mean that you would only hold a portion Mm. to essentially represent the portfolio. Now, the idea here is that in a full replication strategy, you are more likely to minimize tracking error and tracking difference. But that only can work if the underlying securities are also liquid as well, or, or you know the underlying exposure is liquid. So in a more illiquid exposure, you may find that tracking difference and tracking error increases. Mm. So there's that element there. So the underlying exposure, so it varies from, you know, an emerging market bond ETF may have a higher tracking difference, tracking error to a US dollar bond ETF, for example. Mm. The, so the other side is just the underlying cost, the transactional cost that may be associated with running an ETF as well. Um, so sometimes they can increase. And an example I'm going to give you there is our India equity ETF, so NDIA. Um, the underlying cost from a tax perspective and managing that are actually a lot higher than what we would have for a US equity ETF or an Australian equity ETF. And we actually find with Indian equity exposures and Indian equity ETF that there is a very high tracking difference and tracking error versus other equity ETFs. So again, it's not a hard and fast rule. Sometimes we have to accept that there will be tracking difference and tracking error. But as a, as a manager, what we're trying to do is minimize that as much as possible. And our gold ETF is a good example. 19 and a half years running, the tracking difference is 0.4 and the fee is 0.4 as well. So mm. pretty much just the fee. Yeah, interesting. Um, and it's, I'm glad you brought up sampling and full replication. Um, for those that are listening and wonder and are wondering why you don't see many small cap uh, small cap equities ETFs, it's for that reason. Um, it's very hard for providers to to provide an ETF that invests in small caps because the liquidity is so low. So then they have to resort to sampling if there is an index or futures mm-hmm. contract. Um, and, and we see this too in bond ETFs yep. uh, generally too. We see where they will use futures contracts for maybe part of the portfolio if there's not the liquidity, right? 
That's correct, yeah. And it does happen in bond ETFs. So for ours, it's not happening. The underlying um, funds that we hold actually physically hold the bonds. So for example, and they're big enough to do so as well. So the high yield one is a good example, holds about 1,200 bonds um, yeah, right. in its underlying. So a really big basket of bonds, but it's got the ability to do so. So because the fund size of that underlying feeder fund is I think it's over 5 billion US. Um, so yeah, it's right. a very big underlying fund that it gives it that ability to hold. So again, a smaller fixed income uh, fund may not have the ability to hold every single bond in the weighting that it needs to. So it needs to get to a certain size. So it's like the chicken and the egg situation. It mm. may have to approach it in a sampling way to then get big enough to then buy all the underlying exposures. But it's sort of, how do I get to that point? Because then my tracking or tracking difference may increase, et cetera. So mm. There's push and pulls with this, which is, again, why the approach that we took is we worked with with DWS, used that feeder fund structure, but it gave us the ability to essentially um, tap into very liquid, very large underlying funds, which are holding all the bonds um, within those exposures. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. Um, So maybe just one final question then, and this is a good thing that we bring this up around the size of the funds and whatever is for high yield in particular, this is an area of the market that investors are paying attention to all of a sudden, because uh, even here in Australia, because of what we've seen with bond prices recently and traditional, you know, government bond funds uh, struggling. Can you just maybe just give us, if you uh, are across it, kind of like an overview of the landscape of high yield and kind of what (laughs) investor experience is in this regard. So things like, you know, default rates, anything like that that you can think of? Yeah. So essentially when we're talking about high yield bonds, um, some people refer to them as junk bonds, by the way. Um, I think that sometimes gives a a sense of, well, I don't want to invest in them, Um, but it's essentially corporate bonds. So companies will issue bonds. So these are companies, so this is a US dollar high yield bond ETF. So what that is referring to is it's referring to companies, whether they're US companies or they even could be Australian companies, European, et cetera, but they're issuing bonds. So they're trying to raise capital essentially mm-hmm. in US dollars. And the reason why, by the way, some, you know, a European company might do that or a Japanese company or an Australian company or anywhere else is they're trying to tap into what they perceive as being the largest, you know, pool of potential investment capital because the US market is seen in that way. So that's why they may look to issue US dollar bonds. So what this ETF is essentially doing is it's looking at bonds amongst, from perspective of the the lower credit rating agent, um, the the credit ratings. So the best way to think of it is in terms of what what are the ratings. So each bond is given a rating, okay? So that rating goes from, and each, by the way, there's different rating agencies. So if you guys, if anyone is listening, they've obviously through the GFC, these Rating agencies were, you know, mm. sort of dragged through the mud a little bit. Um, For sure. But, you know, S&P, Fitch and Moody's, they would rate a bond. So if I take S&P for an example, they would go from AAA all the way down, which is the lowest risk, so that's investment grade, all the way down to D, which is your investment grade. Mm. Okay. Now, that's essentially what the ratings looks like. So what, what we're looking at with the high yield bond ETF is essentially bonds that have a rating from an from S&P's perspective. So we talked about how they go from AAA all the way to D of below, of or below triple B minus. So essentially you're looking at those that are, you know, going to have a higher risk, higher potential rewards than investment grade bonds. So that means you're going to get a higher yield. So that's why you look at it from that perspective. So it's a bit more speculative. But I would say this is that within the US market, and by the way, when I was looking at the actual makeup of our ETF as well, and you're actually seeing, you know, what level of exposure this ETF has, it's very much concentrated around that 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 triple B minus triple B range as well in terms of the portfolio. But it's big companies by the way, you know, American mm. Airlines, it's Intel. So these are companies that obviously Ford. are having, to, you know, Ford, yep. So these are companies that obviously are going, well, how do I raise money to support their ventures, support continuous R&D, capital expenditure, et cetera? Well, either go list more shares, so do another capital raise on the, on the, on the market, 
or I actually issue a bond and go down that that fixed income market. And that's what a lot of um a lot of companies, a lot of corporates would do. So I guess the the, the thing what we're trying to find is these are very still high quality companies. So when you actually look at the underlying company, so the potential there for default. Um, so the other side to think about it is it's like with an equity um, ETF, you want a, a spread, you're trying to diversify across the board. So I actually did some analysis in terms of what's the default risk. So we hold or within that ETF, there's about 1,200 um, underlying bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, in May, there was five defaults across the portfolio of 1,200 bonds. Hmm. Okay. So it's a very small number relative to what that exposure is. Now, the current product yield uh, on that particular ETF um, or the yield on that index would be sitting at around that um, 5.6% as well. Mm. So it's much high, like it's considerably high yield. There's a spread between obviously like the AAA rated stuff and the high yield. So, yeah. So 5.5, apologies. The duration is 5.6. Yep. So yeah. we like, I think this is where most of invest most investors look at it. I think this kind of goes into that alternative defensive bucket where people talk about, you know, it's got like bond-like characteristics, but it's got the higher yield. So maybe I can tuck it in there as like a little bit of exposure for extra yield. Um, is that the kind of, is that that, is it, was that, I guess, the intention behind launching it? Yeah, look, the, the intention behind launching was, yeah, it's, it's a bit more on the high risk curve within the defensive bucket. So yeah. within that 40%. So if your treasuries are the, the the safe haven, like the gold equivalent of that, or from that fixed income perspective, you know, that's government bonds, it's investment grade, it's as low risk as you can get from a fixed income perspective. This is on the other side as well. And we are looking to, by the way, broaden the range out um, to, you know, potentially look beyond, beyond just these two ETFs as well mm. um, from a US fixed income perspective. And just one thing on the default rates, so S&P, obviously, the, the ratings agency, um, they forecast default rates rising slightly to just above 3% into 2023. Mm-hmm. So again, very low relative, but so definitely that's something that we obviously would look at. That's the concern that people have, the default risk, but the default rates are still very low. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a really interesting product and I'm um, keen to keep a, an eye on it as we go forward to see mm-hmm. how, it, how it tracks and how um, it's received by investors as well, particularly in, as we move into 2023. Yeah, and I think just one thing there is how else would, again, this comes down to the access issue, doesn't it? So mm. we launched gold to give investors access to gold because how else would you be able to do that without, unless you had the money to physically go buy or buy jewelry, which is not the same thing um, with fixed income. Do you, does an investor have the ability to actually just go out and buy one of the bonds? And again, it's like the, you know, we talked about the equity stock risk, which, which bond do you buy? And if you've got the ability to do that, you know, you may only have the ability to buy one or two. Mm. And would you get the allocation to it? How do you liquidate it, et cetera, et cetera. So this is where ETFs come into it. This is where funds come into it. They give the investor the ability to take the exposure without needing to actually hold the underlying. And that's what we are there to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like it, mate. Um, Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. I feel like, you know, we've spoken for about an hour on gold, defensive asset classes, uh, bonds, high yield, treasuries. We've even uh, given everyone a bit of an education on duration risk and and what goes into that. And actually, I was surprised to hear that you said gold was your best investment. So um, <laughs> there's something new for today, mate. I just want to say, yeah, thanks for uh, taking some time to join me on the show, mate. If if anyone is interested, they can head to etfsecurities.com.au, uh, find the PDS and, and all of the info there, as well as the fact sheet, particularly on that high yield fund, which is really interesting. I was looking at it as you were walking us through mm. it there, mate. So Kinnish Chuk from ETF Securities, as always a pleasure. So thanks for joining me, mate. Thanks for having me on. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, 
designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.